Welcome to the Rural Sales Show with my dad and host Sinjin Craner. Each week, my dad interviews people who you can learn from like sales and marketing experts, authors and performance coaches to help you and your rural sales team get to the next level. Oh, and make sure you subscribe or rate us on iTunes so you can buy me a motorbike. And now here's my dad. This week we are very lucky to have a very, very bright lady by the name of Melissa Clark Reynolds. A few of you might have heard of her. She is uh, very active on the ag conference circuit. Uh, Melissa's a good mate of mine from Wellington days. Um, she's actually a foresight practitioner and professional director, has a ton of experience in the tech sector, uh, a real entrepreneur, uh, never short of an opinion, uh, which is great. That's why we've got her on the show. And she's really very much into uh, being a futurist and looking at disruptive models. Um, Melissa's uh, previously been a deputy chair of Radio New Zealand. She sat on the Beef and Lamb board as the first non-farmer director, uh, been a member of uh, MPI's Primary Growth Partnership Investment Fund. Um, I could go on and on. She's really good. She's hung out with... Uh, Clayton Christensen over in the Institute for Future in uh, California and uh, Clayton Christian and anything that he does is amazing. So yeah, she's a real disruptor. She's a big thinker. That's why we've got her on a show. So I'll let the show roll on and you can listen to Melissa yourself. So as always, uh, enjoy it and listen and learn. Hey, Melissa, great to have you here. Um, great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's so good to be here. I'm really excited. I love what you're doing. Thanks, Melissa. Hey, um, so been a while since we've caught up and uh, we know you're a very busy lady running around. Um, first off, what are you, what's been inspiring you lately? What are you seeing? What are you studying? What have you been speaking at, attending for sort of saying? What have you been up to, my friend? Oh, well, you know, we sort of had two years of like not leaving the house, right? Um, and um, interestingly, I kind of in the first little bit of lockdown, um, I had a small freak out because like so much of my work was speaking at conferences and running workshops and facilitating strategy sessions. And, you know, I I probably had about a quarter of a million dollars worth of work walk out in like a six week period. And, you know, when you run your own company and I've just got a small team and I run it from like under the garage, you know, um, it it was a bit scary, to be fair. And then really interestingly, what happened probably, you know, over an 18-month period is opportunities turned up that I would never have had pre-pandemic. So I'm doing more international work now than I've done in years. And part of that was that I didn't really want to travel so much. And so I wouldn't have flown to like the South American Dairy Conference, right, to give a keynote. But they'll happily beam me in for 40 minutes and 20 minutes of questions. Or I keynoted the Ontario Sheep Farmers Conference and we were on, <laughs> it was our anniversary. So we were at the Chateau and I got up at 4.30 in the morning, snuck down to the dining room where the staff had set me up. Uh, spoke at the conference, snuck back into bed, you know. Yeah. So, you know, things like that have been quite different. So I'm doing a lot of international speaking and um, and I'm really loving that. You know, India, Portugal, UK, Scotland, like heaps and heaps of it, mm-hmm. um, which is really nice. Most of it in the meat and dairy sector. Um, so I think like globally, coming back to that question, what am I thinking about is – 
um, I think we're just all really aware in the animal livestock industry that we've got some really big changes coming at us and we don't know what they are, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. thinking about that, um, I just had the absolute kind of privilege to go to the UK for a couple of weeks and I had enrolled in a course um, in 2020 and couldn't go, of course, and then it was cancelled last year as well. And so it was so nice to go and do a one week, like residential, you know, in person, people from 20 countries, futures course. And I think the thing I really took away from that was um, a place called the School for International Futures, um, yeah, School for International Futures, and really focused on intergenerational fairness. Mm-hmm. And so I've been thinking a lot about that. I got to work on a really cool project for the Ministry for the Environment this year on a 50-year long-term briefing on the future of whenua, on land. What do we want land to be like in 50 years? And that's going out for consultation. Done a very cool project on the future of food and fibre workforce for Mukatangata, which is the new Workforce Development Council. We ran 15 workshops from Kirikiri down to Gore, you know, Hokitika over to Tairafiti with everyone in the room, you know, farmers, uh, hops, kiwi fruit, the unions, groundswell, climate activists, yoga mums, you know, pretty much awesome. dairy farmers. Yeah. It was amazing. A whole lot. And so, you, so, you, so, so you haven't been having to go to California, but get to go to like um, Hokitika, Westport, Kiri Kiri, you know, like the travel. Some of them are better than others, I have to say. Yeah, you know, no, I, I'm I'm with you. Like, I think the world's woken up that you don't always have to jump on a plane, and you know, yeah. it might be sexy and glamorous at the time, but it's it can take a bit of a toll, and uh, it can be a bit relentless, right? Yeah. And, you know, I guess I look like um, I've been working on, you know, reducing my footprint as much as I can. Mm. And for me, air travel is still my big Achilles heel. You know, air travel is where pretty much all of my emissions are when it comes to climate, you know. So, and I just think at some point it's going to become untenable, which breaks my heart, of course. Mm. I mean, what would have been better would have been in the 50 years that we've known this was coming that the airline industry had figured out how to decarbonize. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That way I could just keep flying. Indeed. I think, (laughs) you're not to pick on them, but I think Andy's only got a few few challenges ahead. So, Melissa, I want to talk about um, disruptions in ag. I know you'll have plenty to say about that, but, like, particularly in the dairy and the meat sector, um, you know our avatar that listen to the show, they are rural business owners. They might be agri-tech, chemical, crop science, meat, um, agronomy, seed, fertilizer. Like what are yeah. you seeing? What, what are the big macros you're seeing? We get into micro in a minute, but what are, what are the macro factors you're seeing as a futurist? Look, I think the big – in, in the kind of futures business, we talk about drivers of change um, and then we talk about signals. So drivers of change are like the really big macro forces that are changing the world and they're global and they're big and they're kind of incontrovertible at this point. So climate change is obviously the number one. Related to climate change, um, what I'm seeing, and this is what I think is kind of fascinating, is I'm seeing this split into a couple of different things for the rural sector. So one is, you know, all the discussion about um, regulation and hewaka kanoa and all that stuff, which, mm. to be fair, I'm, I'm kind of over. 
Um, you know, then I'm seeing a big bit, which is the impact of climate change on the rural economy. And mm. having been in the UK, um, all I could see was drought, you know, it was drought, yeah. drought, drought, so drought. Dry. So dry. And then I yeah. flew back home and it felt like half of Wellington had slipped off the hillsides and over the roads, do you know? Yeah. So yeah. we came back to sort of Nelson underwater, you know, flooding everywhere, um, we're supposed to have a summer this year that's super hot and dry. And so I think one piece that um, doesn't seem to be as strong in the conversation as it should be is that the rural economies will bear the brunt of climate change more than the cities, in my opinion. Yeah, that's such a that's- such an important point, I think, for everyone to understand that because I think sometimes just due to the bias of volume and population, we think it's going to affect the urban environment. You're absolutely right. So can you just say that again? Because I think it's a very important point. So so the, the, the communities that will bear the brunt of climate change impact in New Zealand will be our rural and regional economies. And it will be for a number of reasons. One of them is that so much of our economy is weather dependent. So we have this, you know, we produce natural products. We produce a lot of them outdoors. Um, you know, whether it's uh, going to get too hot for our sheep or whether we're going to get more fly strike or, you know, whether it's just going to be too wet and we're going to have more and more of these regulations around winter grazing for our animals or mm-hmm. we've got increasing issues with if you put um, and like agri-chemicals on the land, they're going to wash off faster Or if we have drought, they're just going to sit there on the top and they're not actually going to do what we wanted them to do, which was get into the roots of the the plants or whatever. So we've got a whole kind of dynamic here. We also, with New Zealand, you know, we're a big, long, thin country. So our rural areas have more coastline than our cities. And yes, places like Auckland are going to have too much water. Uh, Tauranga is going to have too much water. Dunedin is going to have too much water. I mean, other places too, but those cities are the ones that are really going to, you know, have trouble. But actually, you've got to think about the whole of the coast of the South Island, the whole of the coast of the North Island. We're going to see inundation. We're we're seeing, um, you know, changes to um, water. I'll give you just, I've just been down at Auraki with the Tohono group. And uh, Lake Tasman there, I kayaked on with my daughter 15 years ago. We we had a couple of hours, really lovely, gentle, kind of pissing about on the lake, you know. (laughs) That lake is seven kilometres longer than it was when I was there last. It's growing at 130 centimetres a day. From from the melt of the glacier. From the melt of the glacier. Now, that water's got to go somewhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is downstream from there is farms. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, undeniable, it's, it's undeniable, isn't it? And like, yeah. so on that, because you work at a kind of, you you got a very big brain, you work at a big higher level, you work at the directorships and, and all the things in the bio that we did at the start of the podcast, everyone knows what you're about, you'd be well known to listeners, is before we get into the sales and marketing mix, because I really want your views on that, is like, what are businesses doing at the strategic level with the likes of yourselves, futurists who are spotting these big, yeah. macro factors and then whether they're signals or their noise how well are they planning in their strategic plans or are they are they being myopic what's your view on that 
Look, um, I think just before we go there, there's one sure. other thing around climate, Thanks. which is just our need to adapt. So we're mm. seeing that um, we're going to have to, I think that, the again, the rural economies, the primary industry is going to have to adapt faster than just about anyone else. So coming back to what are we doing? Which relates to that question, which is how are they adapting in their strategic planning with the likes of you on governance? And yeah, so yeah. Yeah, interesting. So what, what I believe to be true is that um, smaller businesses have got a massive advantage here, mm. right? Because, um, you know, I used to joke, right, um, when I when I first ran my own company and someone would pitch something to me like why don't here's a new product or like here's some new software you should use or something I'd have this running joke I'd go hang on a minute I have a board meeting yes and you know I'd have a board meeting of one right and I would discuss it with myself quite quickly and make a decision yes or no right and you think smaller businesses have got that real ability if they see a gap to shoot the gap right mm. whether it's um a, ability to adapt or an ability to launch a new product or an ability to test something and they haven't got a thousand shareholders peering over their shoulders shouting at them telling them whether they're doing a good or a bad job the real problem that I see is that our big monolithical companies in the sector, they have too many people with too many opinions and they've got to keep their share price up. And so counterintuitively, the best way to keep your share price up is actually not to innovate because you don't risk any capital, right? Mm. You don't have to go out to the market and say, hey, you know, we're going to try some stuff and if it doesn't work, oh, well. And this is where a small and medium business has a massive advantage because I can do it. I can go, okay, yep, it's my mortgage or it's my house or it's my farm or it's my business or it's my property or whatever. But you know what? I'm willing to give this thing a bit of a crack. And I might set myself a budget. I might go, you know what? Like I did this a while ago with some friends. We put a million bucks in a pot and we tried something out. It didn't work and there was no hard feelings because we'd all agreed that it was worth trying for a million bucks, but it wasn't worth two. Yeah. And I think that's where um, small businesses can have a real advantage. And so I think about companies like Atkins Ranch, which I'm on the board of, you know, Hawke's Bay based company, um, kind of 27 year startup instant success. Do you know what I mean? Like it took that long to become really successful. Um, phenomenal company. I'm incredibly proud of it. We have, you know, record returns to our farmers for the last few years. Do it again this year. Um, we're able to do things like say, hey, any of you want to go in and try out Regen? Do you know, would you like to, we'll throw some money in the pot. And what if you did the, went through the savory certification for land to market and told us what you thought, do you know? And then we can also go to a customer in the US and say, hey, we've got this new meat. It's kind of interesting. Do you want to like put it into one of your stores and see what you might think? And we can do it because we're not huge. Yeah. And if it screws up, the customer doesn't mind. And actually our suppliers don't mind either. Now, to be fair, this one's gone really well. And within a year or so, we'll have 80% of our throughput will be regen certified. Mm. Um, but we've done that in the past with GAP4, so high animal welfare, with no GMO, with no antibiotics. And we're being able to crack open um, new markets that we didn't have pre-pandemic because 
the pandemic killed some of our products and we were miserable, but we're small enough to be able to go, wow, you know, what could we do with this thing now that we're out of that supply contract? Yeah. And, and we've managed to really increase the revenue on a bunch of our stuff by, by giving it a crack. Well, I was uh, I was privileged to be at your um, I think it's at your supplier evening and your celebration. I think when you were here last time, and and, and the money you've been able to put in farmers' pockets is amazing because yeah. they're on the same. You know, we do a little bit of work with them as, as disclosure, but as you know, but you know, you you there. You, it's a match philosophy, and it's the nimbleness yeah. and this responsiveness and spotting that gap that you talk about, and you can kind of hit that gap at speed. And then the other thing, without yeah. getting with Jeff Bezos, is around that experimentation. Like, yeah, um, and you know, because you know, as Bill Gates said, success is a lousy teacher. Yeah, and also success can be the biggest <laughs> failure. You know, success can be the biggest failure because success yeah. doesn't teach you as much as loss. So, yeah. you know, you're 100% there. And then, Rod, because I was scribbling as I was listening to you there, as around, like Rod Drury around here in Hawke's Bay, he said, it's not the big that eat the slow. It's the fast. It's not the big that eat the small. It's the, it's the fast that eat the slow. Yeah, it is the fast that eat the slow. And, you know, you'll see something like Regen. I know that it's polarizing to people. Mm. Um, but what I would say is kind of over here waving doing it. So you kind of what you can do when you're a bit smaller is you can just go, hmm, well, should we give it a crack? And yeah. let's see what results we get. And, you know, if it doesn't work, oh, we'll have improved our soil. Oh, well, do you know? Yeah. Um, but we're not going to sit around and argue about a definition or um, debate whether or not someone else is bad. The way other people farm is fine. I'm not actually very interested. We're just having a look at our own business and going, well, could we do that better? Could we Could we make more money? Yeah, 100. I mean, do you think, I think New Zealand, you know, coming from UK and, and being a bigger place and bigger population and farming family there, is has New Zealand got the risk of, you know, maybe trying to be, uh, I wouldn't say too big for its boots. I would say more that what I'm trying to say is, our nimbleness should be our competitive advantage. Our speed yeah. to market, our responsiveness yeah. should be. But are we losing that? Well, my worry is that what happens is that, particularly often in rural communities, is that if if you're a bit weird in the city, you can find some other weirdos. Yeah. But if you live in a very small village and you're a bit weird, the pressure is on your entire family. Yeah. And so a bit weird here might be that you decide that you're only going to milk once a day. Yeah. Oh, wow. Do you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. weird or a bit weird might be that you've decided that you're going to go for shedding sheep instead yeah. of um, mm. shearing them. Or maybe you're going to go and do, you know, deer's milk cheese. Yeah. And we we actually need those little weirdos to be pushing the envelope. But I think there's quite a bit of pressure just because we're social beings yeah. to norm, you know, and to sort of not be the freak in the village. Well, and you know, like, you know, 100% because the whole psychology is, you know, we are born to belong. Yeah. And, you know, you know, it literally our brains are biologically craved to belong to others because yeah. the saber tooth car used to run around. So if we're isolated, we put yeah, we everything did. at threat, our survival, our lineage, our food chain everything so you totally understand that the weirdo so like we talked about the macro stuff let's talk then more around because i know you give us a massive view on that like when when ground truthing to like sales and marketing i want to talk to you as a shit hot female entrepreneur run a business super successful done a hell of a lot 
Tell me about a good sales experience, Melissa. Tell me about a good sales experience. I just want to say that um, there's a couple of things. So as an entrepreneur, one of my absolute on-repeat slogans to myself for 40 years has been sales solves everything. Yeah. And I, I, I have been saying that to myself. I heard it actually from Robert Kiyosaki in 1990. Yeah. And it just stuck in my brain. And whenever I'm in trouble, I just remember it. You know, sales solves everything. And I feel like with startups now, we've all got a bit too in love with, you know, pitch it so you can get investment and get investment ready. And, you know, the cheapest money you'll ever get is the money you get from your clients. Mm. Right. And so for me, um, I I love sales. I love it so much. Um, And But also it it's the best way to validate that your product has legs. Do you know? Um, I, I always believe that like you can now you can design a product faster than ever before because you can put up a Photoshop version of it on a one page website and a splash page, and you can put a big fat green buy now button with a shimmer on it. Shopify and you can see if anyone will buy it. Yeah. And if they don't buy it, keep tweaking it until they will. And so I feel like product development has never been easier, do you know? Um, And then on top of that, um, I mean, my favorite sales, I've done everything, to be fair. Do you know? Um, What about you? Let me help you. How about you as a consumer? As a customer, oh. tell me about a really good sales experience because you know what happens when we talk around sales. Everyone, probably you and I are those freaks in the village that don't have a problem with it because we know that basically cash solves a lot of things as well, right? And sales is related. And some people think, ah, oh, I'm not going to even mention the word sales because come up with these wanky terms like, yeah. you know, customer success officer and customer oh, yeah. and, and, and business development manager. It's like, hey, at the end of the day, we need to, if, if someone doesn't sell something, yeah. No one gets paid. So tell me about a sales experience you've had maybe as a customer or a client. Yeah. Or maybe if you can't, tell me about one that you didn't like. Oh no, no. Um, I tell you what, I've just um I've just put solar on our roof. Yeah. Okay. Tell me about that. Now, um, I am quite nerdy, right? So um I did a whole lot of research and I made a big spreadsheet and stuff, and I was comparing all these different people and different options. And I also went out to Twitter and I was like, Twitter mates, you know, who's put solar on? What did you think? Who did you like? Who didn't you? And of course, then I got inundated with like electrical engineers who were convinced that I could just come and see their installation and then parallel import the whole lot from China and wire it up myself, right? And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm up for a challenge, but I realized like, actually, it'd be better for me to do my day job and pay someone to do this. But out of that, I kind of realized that there were some big choices to make, like um, like a fronius inverter, okay? Wow. Now, I'm currently like tweeting my fronius inverter about every hour and a half because... <laughs> I, I love this thing so much. Um, it only went live on Wednesday. We've had like basically terrible weather since, but I'm like going into this app on the Fronius Inverter about every hour to see who's doing what. You know, I know when Mike runs the washing machine at the wrong time of day, and I, I showed him the evidence out of mm. this Fronius Inverter. Confronting. Yeah, very confronting. I was like, we agreed that we would run everything at this window because I'm trying to like optimize the electricity. Anyway, I rang three different providers of the kit. Um, one of them came round, had a cup of tea, 
and actually asked me what I was trying to achieve. And I said, look, I'm trying to get rid of the gas out of the house because, you know, trying to really sort my stuff for climate and future proof. Mm. Mm. Um, we're sick of being cold. It's cold villa. We're going to put radiators everywhere. So I want, a, you know, ground ground heat, heat pump, hot water system that can like put radiators everywhere. I want this house to be like 21 degrees all year round. Perfect. Um, and then, he, you know, the different people took photos of the roof and stuff. But anyway, he talked to me about it. He came back. He gave me two different options um, with different amounts and then variations on whether I needed a Tesla battery or not. He treated me like I was an actual person, not sort of a housewife or something, you know. Yeah. And anyway, the the opposition, Solar City, um, oh, my God. Like, I was in love with their business model, and I have talked in conferences. I've said, oh, these guys are amazing. So what they do is they have a business model where you don't have to buy the solar. You lease it. And yeah. have it installed on your roof. Mm. Mm. And you just, like, pay for the power for the next 20 years, basically. I was like, that's genius. These guys were like super aggressive, treated me like I was a moron. Um, and then when I said I wasn't interested, rang me like daily, you know, Just to try you. and kind yeah. of shout me, shout at me into taking their product. And so I had Harrison's and I had Solar City, and it, Harrison's was more expensive. And there was no real business model innovation in it, which is the thing that normally juices me up, right? But what they had was just exquisite service. And this guy has continued to give me phenomenal service because you know what it's been like trying to do a renovation during COVID. We're running like Nightmare. four months late. Nightmare. Yeah. Um, he just didn't care. He's got all the kit. He was like, when you need it, I'll be round. Um, it'll take uh, my guys three or four hours. Then we wait for the electrical inspector. That was the longest bit was waiting for the electrical inspector. My Tesla battery is currently sitting at Auckland Port. So, um, so it's not up yet. But I just feel really empowered. And so I actually wouldn't have cared how much he charged me mm. because I felt so completely empowered over my decision. And I felt like like he just really reassured me I'd made the right choice. I love that. And why I want to jump in is, I mean, I have this philosophy. You know how you said your mantra is that sales solves everything? Here's my mantra that I teach all my students. The problem with sales is selling. <laughs> yeah. Well, right, that so, was the problem with the other guys. They were so like, on, I bet they were on bonuses. Exactly. So you I felt and I like their it. KPIs were screaming I at know, me. I know. And so what they're doing, they're treating you like a, a unit rather than a human. And yeah. so we talk about human-centered design and UX and all that stuff, which I'm not very good at. But I talk about actually, at the end of the day, it's got nothing to do with selling. It's all got to do with supporting that specific customer, their specific needs, so they can make the most accurate, informed buying decision. So we need to focus less on selling and more helping our customers make the right decision for them. And if you get a sale rewarded in it, it was because it was right. Yeah. And I think the other one um, coming back, sort of another one that I know is, um, this is going to sound like a bit odd and slightly sexist probably, but (laughs) I remember one of my girlfriends years and years ago saying, you know, like men are like buses. There's another one in 10 minutes when I broke up with someone who I thought was the one, right? Okay. Now how this relates to sales is it's quite important because um, we, there is always another client and you are better to have the client you can genuinely help 
then get on the bus with someone that you don't really have the quite the right product for or that isn't really the right one. Do you yeah. see what I mean? I, and then what happens is that you waste your time with that client because you're well, we on that bus. Totally. We force fit it and then it bites you in the bum and then yeah. the symptoms turn up. But the thing is, I always say that you're always going to be needy in your negotiations and desperate for the deal if you don't have enough prospects in your pipeline. Yeah. Like, you know, like the thing is, you know, the worst thing can be in a cell is needy because you're desperate for the deal. And then, and then, you know, the prospect subconscious picks up on that and you get penalized on price, you get beaten up on price. So the lovely thing about your Harrison's example is he treated you like a human being. He wanted you to make the most important decision, whether regardless of it was him or someone else. And he was rewarded with the sale. And the other thing you said as well is it's also the post sales experience. So like a lot of machinery companies that I train, and do you know, when we run these farming panels, they say, do you know what the most important, everyone thinks it's buying the shiny tractor and getting the new steel in and like all oh, big, you know, happy, happy days, Christmas, birthdays all rolled into one nice shiny colored tractor turns up. It's the first follow up after the tractor has been sold. Like, mate, how's that machine going for you? Can I come and yeah. check it out? See how it's running for you. That is the one that matters most, you know? So like it's, it it's, really like say, it's the long tail on it. And the other thing is around, I kind of get a bit, uh, and you can slap me when you next see me, my friend, like this whole wankathon around customer experience. Oh, yeah. I say if you don't get the sales experience right, there won't be a fucking customer experience. Yeah, I agree. Well, the customer experience starts way earlier than you think. 100%. You know, and so, um, yeah, it starts with that, um, you know, I'm trawling on your website like, do you have language that makes sense to me? Do you match my values base? It's right there. And I know we're going to talk a wee bit about like how sales and marketing kind of fit together. Mm, but I mm. think that, that um, you know, you need to think about the sales experience as the whole thing. Now, I think about it, like I've just told however many people how much I love Harrison's. Um, I'm all over Twitter. like So I'm Honeybee Geek, if anyone doesn't follow me on Twitter. <laughs> Um, and that's because my name means honeybee and I'm really geeky and I'm a beekeeper. So <laughs> yeah. it's all a little in joke. Um, but you know, like lately people have been saying, cause I've been posting my photos from my Fronius inverter, you know, who did you do it? And I'm like, go to Harrison's, right? Yeah. And you be on, I'm you not be on, on any commission from them or anything. Honey, honeybee, Melissa, you should be on like some affiliate marketing scheme for her. I know, I know you're, you're not. I, I know you're not. But I don't want to be, you know what I mean? No. Like it's not my day job. But, so tell um, me, but tell me. On you've just picked up on that sales marketing thing. I run across this all the time. I'm sure you do in your travels. Why is it that there's often a disconnect or this decentralization or this fiefdom and patch protection that drives yeah. certainly me mad? I'm sure in your directorships drives even worse. Is you see this opportunity cloth lost between marketing dropping between the stall of sales. So the two aren't connected. And you've talked about that with the customer experience and the sales experience. Do you see that same chasm? And what if you do, what's your solution? What's the symptoms? What would your advice be? Look, um, you know, yeah, I suppose you don't ask me for a non-controversial answer. But I've got you on the show, mate. I know. See, I think that marketing should be the slaves of sales. I'm so glad you said that because I get a lot of shit when I say that on my blogs. I say if, in not, in worse language, it's sales should be a function marketing should be a function of sales, almost subservient. So please continue. (laughs) So what I mean by that is that, um, look, in the old days, you know, I've been on the web for, you know, 100 years, right? And so in the old days, people put these stupid like brochureware websites up. 
And about 20 years ago, the research flipped and it showed that people were coming to the web to buy. They weren't coming really to the web to do that much learning. So, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of all that content marketing. You want all that crap on your website that tells you everything you need to know about, you know, buying HubSpot or whatever it is, right? So I'm up for that. Um, But mostly people have actually made the buying decision by the time they go to the website. They have decided to buy. 57%. What they're going to do is buy it from you or buy it from someone else, right? So at this point, I've already decided I'm going to buy a tractor. Do I want a Massey Ferguson or a John Deere or something? That's all I'm deciding at that point. And then what I see often is marketing slows down my ability to buy the product I had already decided to buy. Interesting. Tell me more. Right? So marketing job then is to get me through that sales funnel as fast as possible because I have already decided to buy it. And that is a very different way of thinking about it. But, you know, meat eaters don't need to be convinced to buy steak, right? Or, you know, you don't have to sell me cheese or whatever it is. But we somehow make people work for the thing that they came to buy from us. So good. So good. So then on top of that, the question would be, why is it, do you think, and we're being vastly unkind, and this is a huge disclaimer of generalization to the good marketers are out there, but why is it that most marketing managers I meet have an aversion to sales? I don't really know, but I feel like they've been sold something that they'll actually be held accountable or something. I don't, yeah, I actually don't know. Do you know? Having said that, like I believe really good marketing managers should do product marketing. They should really understand the product fit to their customer. They should totally understand what drives that customer and why. Um, I talked about things like it's never been easier to launch a new product. Your marketing person should be all over that. I, I, so I think product marketing is where it should sit. Um, and again, like, um, I want good research cause I'm going to, I'm going to double down, right. I'm going to sit there in the board of directors and I'm going to go, yeah, we should put 40 million into that or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. So I want good research. Um, I want really good evidence, but the best evidence is, you know, we sent them this message. We found this particular, like you talked about your avatar, you know, we found this group of people. And out of that, we discovered that these messages got them through the funnel the fastest. That's the sort of stuff I want to know from marketing. So here's another mantra I get from my coach, and and I think this one is a beautiful one. He says, specificity spits cash. Yeah, I love that. You know, like, so if you actually are deeply curious about your consumer like you are and your big brain and and my little brain, I go, I want to, you know, Robert Colley, he talks about the old sort of 1900s admin original copyright. He says, you've got to connect with the conversations your customers are having in their own head. And so most marketers think they're the market. That's really dangerous. They think they're the market and they're more interested. This isn't a beat up, but I find a lot of them, there's some very good ones, but they're not the majority. But I find the majority are more interested in pretty stuff rather than profitable stuff. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? I, I, I look... Sort of hard, you know. My my man is a he. He's a you know you know. Yeah. Um, and I love like he pitches that nobody wants a website; they want more sales. Hundred percent. And I just think that's such a good way of thinking about it. And I, you know, he's got a design degree. Um, and I think sometimes those design degree people they become the the coloring in department. Mm. 
Mm. And then they want to show you at board. They go, well, do you like the green logo or the yellow logo? It's like, I don't really care. I'm not buying this thing. Yeah, can we can we sell it, please? I, I just want to know, are we got the messages right? Actually, I want to tell you a story about a company that I think's done a good job lately yeah, in New please. Zealand. Okay, so... Um, so Brimworth Carpets, yeah, okay? good. they were in a real shitty place a few years ago and, um, and they were very confused. And my experience of them was that um, they were very blokey. They had lots of men on their team they had men on their board. Um, it's a sort of a male industry, but like we've just done this reno, right? And um, I did buy Brimworth Carpet. Um but what I did is I picked two, brought them home and said, Mike, which one do you like? Right. And over and over, you know, what we know is that women choose 100%. home decorating items. 100%. Okay. Now I did a I did a project for a paint company a few years ago and they said, no, our research shows that men buy paint. And their research was right. Like we did a whole lot of in-store research and men came in and we ended up talking to them. And I said, well, so how did you know what paint to buy? And they were like, well, my wife told me to come in and get it. I was like, why didn't your wife come in? And she goes, because she hates the store. Mm. Right? The way she's treated or the way she feels or the belittling. All of that. And we just did that consistently with this paint company. And then I looked at Brimworth and I'm like, you're in the fashion business. Right? Yeah, hundreds. You're not in the carpet business, you're in the fashion business. Mm. And so if you're in the fashion business, you need to really understand what motivates women. Right? Yeah. And then on top of that, um, they were selling wool and polyester. And it's like, who are you? Are you a stand for the planet or are you not? Straddling two horses there. And I just love that they've doubled down on wool and then they've hired a woman. And they're really doubling down on fashion and interior design, and they've doubled their share price. Yeah, do you know? Fancy that. Like, I, I mean, nothing to know- do with me. I want to be super clear. I gave them no advice. I'm not yeah. involved with them. Um, I just think they they are, you know they did a good job. Yeah, of course they did, and that's great. You shouted them out, and I think I think as well they've been brave, yeah. and 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 they've gone right, okay, because you can't straddle two horses and follow a dual strategy, you've got to become world-class at one. And what they've done is they've been rewarded to understand the ideal client avatar. And it's the same in our house. When we have wool carpets brought in, my wife, Maria, I, I don't care. You just make the decision because also you happen to be the CEO and the CFO of the household. Yeah, I might be the COO of the household or the one that goes and buys and gets it or moves and store. But they're massive decision. And we talked about this in farming and ad nauseum around you ignore the, the female in the household at your peril. We, we know that 100%. And I see it all the time with um, software companies trying to sell stuff on farm, with accounting systems, with all that. Like my experience of my friends is that the, the men are out there generally doing the outdoorsy stuff. And I do have yeah. a bunch of great women friends who love that. Yeah. But mostly my women friends are running the books. Hundred percent, and so they know a lot more about the finances. They're the ones who make the choice about what finance software you use, about what EID tags you might use, or you know all of that kind of piece of the puzzle. And yet they, I don't know, they send the blokes off to a golfing tournament or something, and it's like you haven't got the decision maker in the room here. No. Nah. And I think that's something we could really learn again, coming back to sort of services in the primary sector is really understanding who the decision makers are and are you 
echoing them. You know, I think about I was on the board of Beef and Lamb. Um, just some of our, by far, some of our best extension workers were, you know, young women going up those driveways. Yeah. Um, and, you know. Super I'm, empathetic. I'm just Super empathetic. Really super empathetic. And, and often going in and having a cup of tea, you know, with the women on the farm and getting some stuff sorted. And also getting massive intel and insight because, I and mean, this isn't just like a, a, a beat down of blokes because we all love like no. But it's more around the fact that I know from a sales experience is that women generally have a higher EQ. So therefore they are able to extract in a non-threatening fear-based way co- great sales conversations because we know the sales made in the conversation. Yeah. It ain't made in the proposal, the presentation. It's made in the conversation. So if you have a high quality conversation yeah. with the right person, and the reason why your sales cycles are longer, you know this too, is because you're not talking to the right person. You're not talking to yeah. the economic buyer. So you've got a you got a bullseye and then you've got to map the buyer committee and then the decision making process. And the first question you would ask is, so how does a decision like this get made around here? Well, I choose the color Genius. and then he bloody goes and picks it up or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think those really good questions, okay, how does the decision get made here? Who will make the decision? Who will be involved? Um, I love questions like, because I consult now, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, would there be any value in you getting a hand with that? Yeah, totally. Would you like some help with that? Questions you know, are everything. Questions they are, but they, it's not the same as saying, um, you know, would you like to give me 100 grand, right? It's kind of that, you know, is there any value in you getting an yeah. extra? I mean, my, my, fav- my favorite question is when we're having a conversation is, you know, and I was, I'd say, I was, and we're not role playing here, but I say, Melissa, what problem do you feel you're trying to solve here? Yeah. And so I open it right up and you tell me how you define your problem. And then we work through if we're defining the right problem the right way. And we might use success stories or reference stories from other farmers. We're obviously talking in a rural context, but you're 100% that basically questions fuel a quality sales conversation, just like your man at Harrison's. Yeah. And then it's a great sales experience that doesn't feel like a sales experience because yeah. you've had a conversation rather than a presentation, right? Because they haven't done a show up, throw up on you. Totally. Totally. And um, and in that sales conversation, you have a real opportunity to also help to shape the scope of how big or how small this thing is. And, you know, you don't always want to do a big project. Sometimes you kind of go, you know what, we just need to do something small here. And maybe it's just to find out whether or not we can work together. And you can, you can shape that in a conversation. You can kind of again go, hey, look, you know, my experience is that with projects like this, they can get out of hand. So why don't we just like choose something really small? Maybe it's just a five grand or a 20 grand thing. Let's just do a small thing. Yep. Let's see how the relationship works. 100%. And if we love working together, let's talk about what's next. But 100%. 100%. You, need, you need to come on tour with me or you've been listening to me, but like we talk about finding a foothold. Nice. So I know people that have sold eight series John Deere, John Deere tractors by selling that farmer a chainsaw four years before. Yeah. Nice. And, you know, and interestingly as well is like no one gets married on a first date. Yet every salesperson thinks they're going to get married on the first date. And the reality is it's all about them. It's not about you. And ultimately, the less you sell, the more you'll sell. Yeah. So, like, it's completely reverse. And so, you know, you know how you're trying to disrupt in future. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to disrupt sales training because it's yeah. so fucking awful. For the, I think it's for the great. Person. I think it's great. And I think that other one about, like, so I've been, you know, I've been in business now for over 30 years. And um, what I know is that the 
lifetime value of a customer is what I should be measuring, not what's this project worth, you know? And so then if I think about lifetime value, and this applies whether you're doing web sales, so you're thinking, okay, it's going to cost me 20 bucks to acquire a customer. My lifetime value might only be a thousand, you know, for a web sale, or it might be, okay, my lifetime, you know, my cost cost of my cost of acquisition here yeah. is like a thousand bucks, but I'm going to charge you a hundred grand over the next three years or five years or whatever it is. Yeah. And I think there's something really great there about, um, you know, how long can you have a customer for and how do you, how do you start to find the customers that no matter what business you're in, they'll want to come and buy from you. Yeah. And I think, I think hundred percent on that. It's this sort of marketing myopia that we have and, and Theodore Levitt talked about it or whoever it was, or, or Jabraham talked about you, you're exactly right. And I think it's really important for the listener to understand this is you need to work out your lifetime value and then you can properly work out what that customer is worth as a cost to acquire. Cause if you don't have that lifetime, yeah. value, don't have that meaningful metric, then you will be myopic on what that customer is worth. Cause if you can pick up a customer that is going to buy some machinery from you or is going to buy 50 grand of fur every year or 70 grand of seed or 180 grand of tractors every three years in a purchase window, the cost to acquire, you should be spending the money to acquire that customer because they yeah. are worth. So we always say back. Now, this isn't about um, differential shafts on bloody tractor. Back your back end, back the back end. You know, we're so focused on the front end. We've got to be focused on the back end, which is the lifetime value. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so, one last thing, because I know we're going to go soon. But sure. um, the other big change, and, I, and, and you know, I've been talking about this one for a while, and coming out of software, we move from selling people like you know $20 million worth of software to doing the monthly subscription thing kind of 20 years ago. And we've seen that flow its way into every product now. You know, there's a shop just down here, down the road from my house, where you can rent clothes. You know, I rent like I was listening to Spotify, which I turned off when you called, you know, um, I don't expect to own music anymore. I don't expect to own DVDs. You know, I just do a monthly subscription, like all of that stuff. Um, It's coming to farm equipment. Yeah. And I think it's one thing we haven't done enough thinking about. John Deere signaled it in 2016 and said they didn't want to be selling tractors anymore. They want to do it as a service. Now, they've had some speed bumps along the way, um, including some Ukrainian-Russian hacking issues and all Mm. sorts of stuff. Mm. But, you know, um, but the um, long term, I think there's some real questions. And I think our sales teams need to be thinking about this is when do we make the transition from buying stuff to renting stuff? And we no longer need to own it the way we used to. Having said that, someone still has to sell me that stuff. And so this idea of being able to build these lifetime relationships with customers becomes even more important if instead of buying a John Deere, I'm going to lease that John Deere. And this isn't like a lease to own. This is a lease to lease. And then why isn't someone leasing me my dairy shed? And why isn't someone leasing me my VAT? And then somebody else already is um, doing the Internet of Things software that's in the VAT. They're doing that on a subscription. And over time, our balance sheets are going to change massively. And I think, again, sales teams that are not committed to the old models and the old KPIs and the old bonus structures, but instead perhaps think about lifetime value of a customer, that's going to matter even more in the subscription economy than it does now. 
That's so good. I'm so glad you said that because this is this is why we get brainy people like you on the show. <laughs> like tell us things that we don't know. And it's interesting because you know I read some subscription books around transaction cost or ownership cost, and to say you're freeing up cash flow on your balance sheet to repurpose that money somewhere else where you can grow and get asset return on asset radio. Melissa, always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, thanks for sharing your stories. Um, where can people find out about you and your big brain? Where can they access you? Um, look, I've got a website, futurecenter.nz, um, but Twitter is my happy place. I, I kind of know I should use LinkedIn, but um, mostly, I don't know. Um, so, but I'm all over Twitter. So Honeybee Geek on Twitter, um, Google me. I'm, I'm ridiculously responsive. If you send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or yeah, I anywhere can vouch else. For that. I can vouch for that this week. I said, Melissa, I want to get your podcast like ping straight back. <laughs> and that was on LinkedIn. Funny enough. Yeah. So, oh, you know, give me a yell. Um, also like book me for your next conference, right? Um, yeah, I'm sure. funny. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of disturbingly um, interested in the future. So I'll shake you up. Uh, I'll make you think. But in the end, I really want you to win. Like mm. that's my big thing. I want the rural sector to win in New Zealand. My first job is on a Savaloy line. My second job is as a Rousey, um, you know, director on meat company board. Um, I just I just want our I want our farmers and our producers and everyone who supports them to win. So, so do we. So do we. I think it's such a good way to end. Melissa, I will back you 100%. I've watched you at conference. I've watched you talk at Atkins Rants conference. Talking about all the things you're picking up from all your travels and everything else. So you are super gifted. I'm absolutely chuffed to call you a mate. And um, it's lovely to have you in my world. So thank you very much for giving me your time. Thank you. Back at you. Thanks so much.